when we enter the Sangha, you're making a commitment to practice over a long period of time. Once one takes on the precepts, shaves one's head, wears the robes of a bhikkhu or samanera or even anagarika, that commitment's there, has to be there as long as we are in the robes. We have to commit to following the Vinaya and to take up the training from days to weeks to months to years, maybe even a whole lifetime. So we have to learn how to motivate ourselves and bring up faith, satar in the teachings and in the way of practice regularly. It's different than being a lay practitioner who might just occasionally attend a monastery or a retreat and go back to more worldly concerns and pursuits. Part of our challenge as a bhikkhu is to learn how to keep motivating ourselves, keep bringing up that faith. And in the beginning in particular, it's particularly based on two things. One is on the confidence and faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha. The Buddha is the awakened one, self-enlightened. The knower, the knower of the worlds. One whose mind is completely free from greed, hatred, delusion, free from the kilesa. But we also remind ourselves that the Buddha was a human being, just like us, in the sense born with the same kind of qualities as us, as a human being, a body, a mind, five candors. All the enlightened disciples of the Buddha, the Sāvaka, in the time of the Buddha's life, or through to the present day, like Lumpocha, also born as human beings, practiced as human beings, just like us. All born still with kilesas present in the mind, affecting the mind. Affected by dukkha, <coughs> learning to deal with dukkha wisely, reflect on it, abandon the cause of dukkha through the practice. No different from us. And the whole of the Buddhist 
teachings, the Buddha's words are based around this fact that they're suitable for human beings to practice with, train with. We're beings that can train. We can learn from our experience. We can reflect with mindfulness, with wisdom back on our experience and cultivate the path that leads to the end of suffering. We can do that as human beings. The Buddha and the Sāvakas have proven that. The other important aspect of our satara is the faith in the truth of karma. Karma is something that affects us all the time and it's a truth that we can't avoid or escape from whether we realize it or not. Our actions bring results and dependent on the quality of our intention the kind of results will change good or bad. That it is in our own interest to practice and develop, cultivate the path because it's good karma that will bring us to the end of suffering. Develop the qualities, conditions, the causes that will bring us to the end of suffering, which is what we wish for. We wish to be happy like all other human beings. It is worth practicing letting go of unwholesome mental states, unwholesome speech, unwholesome actions. It is worth cultivating wholesome, skillful states of mind, skillful speech, skillful actions. This is part of our motivation for practice. Whatever other difficulties and challenges we face, if we have that understanding at the underlying our practice, then it helps to bring up all kinds of other skillful qualities to help us get through the obstacles directly leads to the arising of effort and energy to practice, understanding that it's worth it, it's valuable, and it will bring happiness. Brings patience, as we also understand we've made karma in the past, and we're receiving the results of that, good and bad. And it takes time to cultivate new good habits and refine those habits, those skillful actions so that they bring us the result that we wish for, the end of suffering. We gain energy and effort, we gain patience by reflecting on karma. We gain kindness and compassion following in the footsteps of the Buddha. 
we understand ourselves, others, we're all subject to karma. And really it's not worth doing things that harm ourselves or others. It just prolongs suffering, makes more suffering for ourselves, for others. So we're motivated to abandon unskillful states of mind. This is why the Awada Patimokha is so useful as a daily reflection. The non-doing of evil, or the abandoning of evil. The cultivation of good. Cleansing, purifying the mind of the defilements, so that it's pure, peaceful, free from suffering. This is a simple reflection and it we reflect on it because it works, it's true. Others have proven it's true and even through our own reasoned reflection and our own more limited experience compared with the Buddha, we can see it's true, it's at work. So we're all starting with the same raw materials as the Buddha and the Sawakas, body and mind. We've come this far in our practice that we've taken the step to ordain, take on the Vinaya and the training. So we use this faith to keep motivating us to learn and to train. And it is a training, it's a learning process. We call it the Trisikas. Sila, Samadhi, Panya make up the path, Marga. Sikha means that which we study or learn from. So we study and learn from precepts and keeping precepts. We learn from the practice of Samadhi. It's a study, it's a training. The development, cultivation of wisdom is a training something we study and develop. And obviously, much of this study and learning is taking place internally in our own hearts and minds. It is related to the external world, particularly on the level of sila. We're cultivating skillful interaction with the world so that we're avoiding making bad karma, evil karma as we interact with other people. So we develop skillful relations, skillful speech, skillful actions, harmlessness, compassion. Also skillful interaction with the physical world, our environment, material world, the things we use learning to care for the environment, care for the things we use, however few they may be. As monks, we don't have a lot. We learn to look after what we have, take care of it, because it's all come to us from the goodness, the kindness of others. So we try to leave, live in an economical, frugal way, not to be careless or extravagant. This is all sila, it's a training. We might not necessarily be yet very good at it when we begin our practice. 
So we have to keep reviewing our sila, reminding ourselves of it, teaching ourselves about the precepts, the rules, the various practices that we do. We have to learn to reflect daily on our behavior, partly on using the standard that the rest of the sangha keeps. So we have these reflections like what would wise bhikkhus think of this kind of behavior. It's a way you can reflect to gauge whether your behavior is keeping the vinaya and something that's wholesome and conducive to the development of the path, the ending of suffering, or not. We reflect back what our friends would think about this kind of behavior. And also we reflect on our own mind, what's arising in the mind based on our behavior, our speech, our actions, how does it affect the mind? Because obviously if we don't study the sila, the vinaya and don't keep it well, the mind becomes disturbed, agitated easily because of the sense of regret, guilt, confusion that comes from our behavior. So we study sila and our interaction with the world around us. And this sets up the conditions for the development of samadhi. Drawing our attention inside, inwards, developing a meditation object, developing mindfulness, restraint, and then learning to direct attention to different meditation objects to calm the mind, concentrate the mind. This is a training, something we have to keep putting effort into, keep bringing up, keep pointing the mind to the meditation object, keep learning to be patient, to bear with the obstacles of a mind that is not yet well trained, not yet peaceful. We learn to reflect on the effect of our senses and sense objects on the mind. We practice Indriya Sangwara as a supportive condition. It's really practice of sila, but it's supporting the arising of samadhi. Because so much of our life is bound up with the effect of sense impressions, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and the impression they leave on the mind itself. Or if we're on our own, just the memories and thoughts that come up. For one who hasn't trained in sila and samadhi and hasn't yet developed much panya or insight, Ajahn Chah used to say there'll be somebody who just follows their moods, meaning whatever mental state arises, whatever thought arises, they'll immediately identify, believe in, hold on to that mood, that thought. 
most of us can probably remember before we came to the monastery, before we started dedicating ourselves to the practice. Even though we lived in the world and had knowledge and experience of many things, the actual experience of the mind was that it will just follow its moods. We're happy, we're sad. We're satisfied, we're dissatisfied. We're peaceful, we're angry, we're depressed, we're sad. That's how it was. The mind just follows its moods based on experiences. Partly it's based on, it was based on lack of understanding. Partly just habit. As human beings, when we're untrained, we tend towards just delusion. Getting lost in moods, mental states, thoughts, believing them. The more we believe in them, the more we proliferate around them, create suffering out of them. It affects our view of the world. And when we're deluded, then we tend to be stuck in the worldly dhammas. We assume gains, different kinds of material gain, fame, reputation, status, power, authority, different kinds of pleasure, the four worldly kinds of happiness will bring us true happiness. So we're always pursuing them. And we're always cringing away from loss, failure, criticism, lack of reputation or bad reputation, loss of power and authority, loss of pleasure, displeasure or pain arising. But before we practice, we never really reflected or saw clearly that even if you gain the worldly dhammas, you gain material wealth, you gain praise, good reputation, fame and fortune, it doesn't last. By its nature it degenerates, it's impermanent. It can never bring us lasting happiness. We never reflected much on that, so we're just caught up in endlessly seeking different kinds of happiness, clinging onto them and then losing them getting caught into despair, unhappiness because of it. Endless cycle. In just one life, it's a cycle. If you can extend back, you can see, well, probably it's been going on like that many, many lifetimes, innumerable lifetimes. When you reduce it all down, it comes back down to the mind itself, the mind that attaches, identifies with its moods, mental states, doesn't have the clarity or the wisdom to see that these things are impermanent, not self, not to be clung to. That's our background. So we come into the monastery, the sort of shorthand way we describe a new practitioner, as we always say, or somebody who still has a large amount of ditti mana attachment to views, 
clinging to views and a conceit of self. Obviously we all have that, but it's still, when we're new to the practice, it's thick. If somebody who's practiced a long time, it's thinner, it's less, because they've seen the suffering that the ditti mana holding on to it causes. Someone new hasn't yet realized that, so we tend out of habit just to hold on to ditti mana. That's why when we come into the monastery there's a lot of suffering. Even though we mean well, we wish for freedom for liberation, following the path out of faith. The daily experience is often constantly running into suffering because of ditti and mana. We identify with every thought, every mood, every reaction. We identify with all our hopes, desires, expectations. And then when we don't get what we want, or we get it but it doesn't last, then we get disappointed, depressed, unhappy. But if we are willing to commit to this practice, to train ourselves in the sila, in the mindfulness, in developing samadhi, and in developing the wisdom, reflecting back on these truths, the mind starts to let go a bit, starts to, and the experience evens out. That sense of initial suffering subsides as we get more used to the practice, as we know what we have to do to avoid suffering in suffering. We realize, hmm, these views I've been holding on to and identifying with are maybe not in my best interest. It's okay to let go a bit, relax. When we let, let go of our ditti mana, well, there's less conflict with others, there's less suffering within ourselves. Less arguments with ourselves, less arguments with others. Less doubt within ourselves, less confusion. This is why our teachers, like Lumpur Cha, give us these very simple, effective recollections, everything is minor, not sure, not certain. Because our thoughts, as we start to establish mindfulness and reflect on them, we see they're just constantly arising and ceasing. Moods, mental states arise and cease according to causes and conditions. They are not self. So the habit of always identifying with every thought, making into a big deal in the mind, changes and we start to make them into a smaller thing. The big mountains we were creating now start to diminish, become smaller hills, smaller bumps, till even they just disappear and the land goes flat. Through the presence of mindfulness and insight, this is the training in wisdom. We train in sila, train in samadhi, we train in insight, wisdom. So it means we have to be willing to learn from experience and reflect using the wisdom of the Buddha and then turning it into our own wisdom. It actually becomes our own possession through our own experience. It's all in a good cause, simply developing the causes, the conditions for a peaceful mind. 
peace based on the presence of Sila Samadhi Panya, and the understanding what brings suffering and what ends suffering, and then applying that, taking responsibility for our own actions, our own practice, not blaming anybody else in the world, just seeing really it all comes down to me. This is what Buddhism teaches us. As human beings, we are responsible for our own happiness and suffering because it arises from causes and conditions and those causes and conditions come from us. We can't blame some external force, or some god or some deva or spirit. We can't blame others, parents, teachers, friends, neighbours, whoever. As a bhikkhu, this is what we're learning. It all comes back down to us. We're born alone, we die alone, we practice on our own. Doesn't mean to say we neglect others. Of course, that's part of the practice. It's developing the skillful relations to the world, with the world. But in terms of penetrating the Four Noble Truths, we have to be clear and we admit that... Hmm, these arise in the in the mind of each human being. This wisdom is to be experienced by each one of us for ourselves through our own efforts. So the training in wisdom is very much a maturing process. In Thai they use the word oprom bom nitsai. Bom is the same word you use for when you fire a bowl. You bake it, you mature it with the heat till it goes black. You were training and maturing wisdom by developing mindfulness and then reflecting wisely on our experience, being honest and clear with the truth. Suffering comes from the cause. This is the cause. It's this grasping clinging, identifying with every thought, every mood as self. You know, as lay people we used to just fall into very easily, fall into moods like when something goes well, we do well in something, we have some success and we say, ah, oh, I'm successful, I'm a good person, I've got what I want. But success often changes very quickly, it's short-lived. Or we had some failure, something went wrong, or we didn't get what we want. We identify with that and say, I'm a failure, I'm no good. We get depressed, disappointed, and just constantly flopping around like that. Happiness followed by sadness, excitement followed, followed by boredom, enthusiasm followed by despair and depression, up and down, all, all, all over the place. As a bhikkhu we are learning to transcend that through the development of the path, sila samadhi panya. We're cultivating some qualities that take us beyond that so we can look back of the, at these karmic movements of the mind and start to rise above them and they gradually diminish their power for the mind to fall into these different states of happiness and sadness fades 
because there's a higher knowledge the puru or the awakened knowledge of the Buddha that we're developing ourselves so even when one still may face some success or failure as a bhikkhu it doesn't have to affect the mind the mind can know success is like this failure is like that rather than just reacting and proliferating around it, endlessly identifying with the experience. We just know it for what it is. Oh, this went well. These good causes led to these good results coming up. That didn't go well. I made a mistake there or made a wrong decision there. It's led to this problem here, this suffering here. But it's just like that. Happiness and success is like that. Suffering, disappointment is just like that. <coughs> that sense of a person becoming those states fades and they just become mental states that arise, pass away. Araminas, pleasant araminas, unpleasant araminas. In Thai we say arom. It's what the mind can know, but the mind doesn't have to cling on to or let it be a course to condition the mind to proliferate and build a whole story around the success, the failure, the up and mm. the down. They are just what they are, experiences that arise, pass away. And this ability deepens in the training in wisdom particularly deepens as we investigate our own candors more closely. We establish that ability to look closely through developing mindfulness, clear comprehension and samadhi. And then we look closely, observe this nature of the body and the mind to arise and pass away according to conditions. Intellectually, we understand it already. We've read the books and heard the talks. We know this body is subject to aging, sickness and death. It's impermanent. Every day we know, notice it has pain and pleasure, hunger and then full, tired, sleepy, then we wake up, feel energetic and so on. It changes. The look of our body changes with age and so on. We know all that. We can remember that, teaching that truth. But it's also knowing it with the mind of the Puru, the mindfulness inside that just knows the body as an experience, as impermanent and not self. That requires a little bit more thorough investigation. It's not just an intellectual practice. It has to be one that we undertake with mindfulness guiding it. With mindful attention we focus on the body, the 32 parts of the body, the four elements, the ten cemetery recollections. In a skeleton, we've got a skeleton in our cupboard, the skeleton we used to have in the monastery in Thailand, it had a little sign next to it saying, one who sees the corpse in themselves, finds happiness in Nibbana. By the standards of the world, that sounds weird or crazy. Who wants to see themselves as a corpse? Sounds like wrong thinking. 
in the standards by the standards of the world, but by the standards of the areas, it's just wisdom, it's truth. This body is a walking corpse. And literally everything we are looking at when we look at ourselves or a person is dead, because all the cells on the outside of a body are dead cells. Hair, skin, nails, teeth. And it's bound to die. Cells are born and dying every moment and eventually the whole process gradually leads to the packing up of the body for one reason or another. It just doesn't last. It is destined to die. If you can see that, you see the impermanence of this body with mindfulness, a lot of other kilesas drop away. There's nothing to be angry about or hate about this world or ourselves or others when we see the impermanence of it, when we can recollect death and anger drops away. If you're really seeing the corpse in your own body, then there's nothing to get angry about. There's nothing to love in the worldly sense, the love that where one's deluded and thinks that this object that I love will bring happiness, a lasting happiness. So the kind of more normal ideal of seeking happiness in a relationship, marriage, that normal way of thinking, we also see the limitations of it. There's no such thing as lasting love because the body is impermanent doesn't last. Whatever image you love doesn't last. Whatever bits you like about a person doesn't last. So love and hate drop away when we can see impermanence, we see the corpse in our own body. Again it brings the mind back to this evenness of Upeka based on presence of mindfulness and wisdom. We know ultimately Love and hate are still mental states, they're not true happiness. And they're very deluding, tempting. We all want to fall in love, whether we like it or not, it will happen. We fall in love with experiences, small things, or we fall in love with a person or something very profound, but it's still falling in love. The very word falling in indicates the delusion behind it falling away from equanimity where mindfulness and wisdom is functioning well into a state where they stop functioning into a state of attachment <clears throat> which is only going to lead to more sorrow, suffering and despair also conditions hatred you love someone, something happens to them you get angry, afraid Somebody threatens them, you get angry and hate that person. Somebody threatens you, if you still love the idea of your own self, your own image, then we get fear and anger arising towards others based on that. As a bhikkhu we're going very deep down into the very causes for suffering. And it is going against the stream of the world, so we have to be very patient. But the Buddha gave us all the tools to do it, all the skills, skillful means to do it. More than we need. There's a whole wealth of 
teachings in the suttas and teachings from our teachers. Some of those ubayas we might use, some we might never use, because they're useful for others, maybe not for us. But we have more than enough. Before the Buddha passed away, he said, I, am, I can enter Parinibbana, I can leave the world now, because I've taught everything that you need to know to end suffering. He didn't leave anything out. And also, he taught because we can practice it. As human beings, we can do this. It's not beyond our ability. But we have to be patient with the stream of the world because our own, own karma, our, own, our old habits are there. Our ditti mana is there and it will come up. It causes us fresh suffering when we fall into it. We do become caught into excitement and happiness and then one day and then despair and suffering the next. But the way through it is developing, the, cultivating this path of training, sila samadhi panya. <coughs> it does work. It's worked for others, it can work for us. And really we have to be very honest and very mature and say, well, if it's not yet working, well, maybe it's because I haven't put in enough effort. I haven't learnt and studied enough, practiced enough. I need to put more effort into studying the Vinaya and then keeping it, applying the Vinaya to my daily life, my daily practice. I need to apply the meditation techniques to calm the mind and develop samadhi. I need to apply wisdom, reflect on what is kilesa, what conditions can I say, how it affects the mind, how can I abandon it, what tools do I need to abandon it? And then actually realize when you've abandoned Kalesa, we already, none of us would be here if we had no ability to abandon Kalesa. We often build a picture in our mind that there's this wall of Kalesa that's just impenetrable and we feel inadequate and don't have the ability to let go and overcome kilesa. Often we feel like that. But actually we should be honest and say, well, we must have let go of some kilesa, otherwise we wouldn't be able to live in a monastery like this. There's more kilesa to still let go of, but we've already achieved something thus far in our practice. So we should be balanced in our appraisal of our efforts and not just always again in the worldly way is always to feel well I haven't achieved everything I set out to I still have a mind full of kilesas still have suffering haven't attained samadhi haven't attained magapal nibbana yet and then by the worldly standards we say well I must be a failure all of this I put all of this effort in haven't achieved what I wanted Maybe we have to step back and appraise it in a little bit more balanced way now and say, well, I've achieved a certain amount. I've learnt to follow the Vinaya, learnt to practice the meditation, live in this way so far. If I keep practicing, well, then I can deepen this practice, deepen my understanding. If I'm willing to give it the time, put in the patient effort, well, if I've come this far, I can almost certainly go further. There's no reason why not. 
We have to learn to use our own intelligence, ability to reflect with reason, with understanding, to help ourselves. If we feel too conceited, too ambitious, well, maybe we have to calm down a little bit, settle down a bit. If we feel too despondent, despairing, we have to maybe bolster ourselves. Whatever is needed at different times, we have to learn how to use the mind and use the training to do it. In the end, Ajahn Chah used to say, one who does the practice gains the result. Every day, even though it's sometimes hard to get up in the morning, sometimes hard to apply ourselves to meditation, to the tasks we need to do, the chores, the vinaya, any time we do it consciously, intentionally, we gain. We gain good karma, the results of the good karma, the happiness, the goodness that arises in our heart. Again, it's the worldly way, isn't it? They always sort of look around and say, well, they're not doing it, I'm not going to do it. Why do they never help when I do it? We sort of go back into the complaining mind, the worldly mind. But the way of the Dhamma is whoever does the practice, whoever applies themselves to the sila, the samadhi, the panya, they gain. They get something at that point, at that moment, straight away. Those who don't apply themselves don't gain. Those who do apply themselves do gain. Like Ajahn Chah used to say uh, in Thailand, in the dyeing shed where you have robe washing days and it always takes effort to set up the robe washing, chop the chips, boil the water, prepare everything. And then some monks come and they help, and they wash and they supportive work like a team, other monks are a bit more selfish, they just come in, wash their robes and disappear and never help. Maybe they go off and just have a sleep. Ajahn Chah said, you know, every monk will experience that kind of situation and the irritation, they're, they're never helping, I want to do it, but they're never helping. But you have to set aside that way of thinking and just say, if you're doing your bit, you're doing your own practice, you're gaining, you're making merit, you're making good karma. Whatever you do, you gain. You do a little, you gain a little, you do a lot, you gain a lot. If others are not doing anything, well, that's their, their affair, their lookout. You don't have to look down on them either. But you understand who does the practice gains something from it. Who doesn't, doesn't gain. So the weather is good, we have plenty of warm weather opportunities to practice the nights, the days. So I'll leave you with these reflections and I encourage you all just to keep up your practice. <laughs>